you know I'm a big fan of Isaiah's prophecy. And uh, this is another incredible word spoken to the people who were in exile. So they'd already been taken out of the promised land. And this was probably the lowest point of Israel's history up until that time. Uh, remember at the beginning of the story there was all this expectation. Uh, Abraham was called and promised the land and he sojourned there and then he had children and there were the 12 tribes and eventually they find themselves through a meandering process in Egypt and then into the land. They come out through the exodus and then this uh, bunch, a confederate of tribes, becomes a nation. And under King David, they grow really strong. And then under King Solomon, as big as Israel ever had been, it was an amazing kingdom at that time. And then just after Solomon, things take a dark turn. The, the kingdom is divided. There's a rival king set up uh, in the northern part, and the northern tribes have one king and the southern tribes have a, a different king and there's enmity between them and then surrounding nations start to attack and the northern tribes get taken off by the uh, Assyrians and uh, the southern tribe stayed in Jerusalem for a long time but then Babylon came and overthrew them. And this is the darkest hour because now there are no people of Israel in the land that had been promised and there's a psalm, Psalm 137, that captures this, and you've probably heard Boney M. sing it at some stage. It goes, By the rivers of Babylon, where we sat down, we wept, and we remembered Zion. And it goes on, and it's a, a, a lamentation of all that we had hoped for, all that we had gained, all that we had enjoyed is now gone. So that's where the people are, when Isaiah brings this incredible vision to them. And uh, Israel had thought that its whole story had been about itself. And this is not an uncommon thing with human beings. We tend to think the story is about us. And all of the scriptures up until that point had been focused largely on the people of Israel. So they figured it was a very Israel-centered story that they were living in. Um, most uh, nation states at the time that Israel was at this time were engaged in a process of survival and dominance. So they wanted to survive as a nation and they did that by dominating those around them. And Israel was no different from that. And we get a sense of how deeply ingrained Israel's sense of their own righteousness or rightness or entitlement was because going on, if you read Psalm 137, there's some fairly gruesome bits in it. And at the end, uh, you get a line like this, and I apologise to the young people, they should cover their ears, but it says, O daughter of Babylon, you devastated one, how blessed will be the one who repays you with the recompense with which you have repaid us. How blessed will be the one who seizes and dashes your little ones against the rock. So it's a very brutal idea there. And this idea that the people of Israel are so upset, they're so stricken by what's happened to them that they think any kind of uh, retaliation against their enemies is justified. That's not an unfamiliar feeling, I think. If something happens to your people, 
and somebody's done something terrible to them, it's a very common reaction to want to do something very terrible to the people who have done something terrible to your people. The people had a sense that they were up against everybody else, that uh, they weren't there to serve anyone, they were there to look after themselves. And then into that context, Isaiah has this incredibly big vision. Isaiah saw the God of Israel not as a local deity, not as one of the fertility gods that the local people had always worshipped to try and get better crops and sustain themselves. Isaiah saw God as the God of the heavens and the earth, the whole earth, of everybody. Isaiah saw the creator God as holding the whole world as his area of interest. In this context, Israel was called to be God's servant to the rest of the world, a kind of first fruits to indicate the way, to show the way how to be one of God's people. Now this is a a massive shift of Copernican kind of magnitude. You might remember that uh, once upon a time, people on earth thought that all the planets that we observe out in the, the sky at night were moving around the earth, because that's our point of view, right? Here we are, we're watching, and they go past, and we think, oh, wow, all these things are whizzing around us out there. And then, ages later, Copernicus worked out using mathematics and calculations and observations and so forth that actually, I think we're all revolving around something else, the sun. And that's why our system is now called a solar system. And this massive shift of understanding of what was central uh, is, is huge and it changes everything. And that's the kind of shift that Isaiah is offering to the people. You think the story's all about you, but actually you're really important in it, but it's not all about you. It's about something much, much bigger and even more important. It's about the people of God being all the people. In fact, any person who wants in can be in. It's so easy for us to think that ethnic identity is how we identify ourselves. No matter what ethnic group you're part of, when you see other people who look similar to you or have the same accent or whatever, you identify with them. Oh, they're my people. And people who are different, we go, oh, they're not my people. They're different people. And so it's really easy for us to get caught up in this idea that uh, it's a bloodline or it's a, a shared ethnicity or, or this kind of thing. But Isaiah wants to say, no, the people of God are all the people who want to be the people of God. That's what it's about. This is a really, really subversive idea and hard for us to, to really grasp, I think, because it's so easy for us to see other people as different or as them. But Isaiah's approach uh, is, is so much bigger. And we see that Israel struggled to hear this message because years later, when under the leadership of Nehemiah and Ezra, people did return to the promised land, they were still very caught up with their ethnicity. And Ezra instituted a rule that said, you have to be able to prove your bloodline to get land back in uh, Jerusalem, and this, there may have been opportunist things going on there, so he may have been trying to weed certain people out. But it's really hard for us to actually believe that the people of God could be all those people 
who want to be the people of God. You just have to say, yes, and I'm in. We hold an all too small view too often, and we need to appreciate more fully the true nature of our God who is far more generous than we ever can be. Now this servant that Isaiah speaks about, he's talking about Israel, but of course we know the perfect servant comes forth in the person of Jesus who responds to the world in the way that God always wanted the people of Israel to respond and indeed wants us to continue to respond in a way like that. And he says of this servant, he's going to open the eyes of the blind. The servant of God is going to do something really miraculous. He's going to alter the way people see everything. It's interesting, when Jesus came and did his ministry, he did actually open the eyes of blind people. He spat in mud and made clay and put it on their eyes and told them to go and wash, and they started to see. But even those miracles are designed to tell us something more profound, which is about what we see when we look out. And here is the notion of opening us to see things, things that have actually always been there for us to see, but for whatever reason we've been blind to. And the servant of God opens blind eyes. It's an amazing thing to see a person uh, have their sight improved, somebody who's not been able to see or had poor sight and they have their sight improved. That's a fantastic thing. It's an even more glorious and miraculous thing to see somebody who's been so uh, blind in their attitude become open to new things and open to a new world that they can then engage in because their, their prejudice has been undone and their blindness has been done away with. And this servant is going to set prisoners free. It's going to be a sense of liberation. Um, now, it should be noted that Setting prisoners free isn't always a good thing because if the prisoners are bloodthirsty criminals, we don't want them running around on our streets, do we? Okay? So that's not the kind of prisoners we're talking about here. Sometimes we do uh, restrain people for the good of the community. But quite frequently, people get locked up in situations that aren't for the good of anybody, whether through circumstances or misunderstanding or just failures of different kinds. People often find themselves locked up. They can be locked up emotionally. They could be locked up financially. They could be locked up in prison. uh, They could be locked up politically in all sorts of ways. And this servant of God is going to set the people free. Very profoundly, again, subversive to the structures that we use to keep order and and structure in in these ways. But uh, this is a sense of wanting people to live fully so that they can contribute fully and enjoy the richest and fullest sense of life. So in both of these things, blindness and uh, incarceration, there's both an environmental or external or physical sense to it and there's an internal or dispositional kind of sense to it. We can liberate prisoners out of actual prison cells, but you can liberate people... You know, when uh, people dance like no one's watching, they're really liberated. That's a sense of liberation as well, where we just enjoy being alive, and that's a a lovely sense of freedom. What God wants to do, in a sense, is both of those things, because if you liberate people from the inside, it changes the structures we use to order society, 
And so we bring liberation in all sorts of physical ways to people. If you open people's attitudes and change what they see and the way they see so that they are no longer bigoted or, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Prejudice. That'll do it. Yeah, prejudice. Then that'll change the way we engage with people and it will actually, we, people who are in need, we can attend to their needs and if they're blind, we can you know, attend to their eyesight as well. It's a really interesting thing. We sometimes think that the, the, um, the West emerged out of the Middle Ages because of the discovery of science. But kind of the opposite happened in a funny kind of way. For example, sometimes we think communities stopped burning witches. Remember they used to have witch hunts and burn witches who were people that did terrible things in the community, this kind of stuff. And we kind of hold this idea that maybe we stopped burning witches because we worked out that the witches weren't responsible because we found science. But evidence indicates the opposite is true. Through compassion, people suddenly worked out we probably should stop uh, burning arbitrary innocent women for things that we're not really sure they actually did. And once you remove the idea that witches are responsible for certain things, you open up the opportunity to find out, well, I wonder why those things did happen. And that's the birth of scientific research and discovery. And that, the indications are that's actually what happened. That once we didn't have a, a ready excuse for what was going on, we had to find out what really was going on. So the removal of one thing leads to the development of another thing. And so as you change from inside, it changes what happens in the environment outside as well. And this servant who's going to open blind eyes and release captives and so forth, he is an extraordinary servant because this servant has incredible gentleness. No coercive force will be used. There will be no crying out in the streets. And uh, you've got to wonder, if you don't cry out in the streets, how are you going to get your message known to people? But this servant is going to do it in really incredibly gentle ways. We don't do much with reeds these days, but reeds are hollow plants that if you bump them the wrong way and they get bent, they, they're very, the, the structure of them starts to fail. Think of um, paper straws, a paper straw. If you bend a paper straw, that's the one place where it's likely to break. So this servant, even a bruised reed... You brush past a bruised reed, it'll break. He's not going to break a bruised reed. He's so gentle. A dimly burning wick. You know, you, you blow out a candle and that, the smoke rises from the wick and it's just almost out. Well, this, this servant is going to be so gentle that even the last little bit of embers will not be extinguished in the way that he does his ministry because he's so attentive to what's going on. And the other thing about this, because you, you could think, well, if he's going to be so gentle and not cry out and all that, how's he going to get anything done? He'll just get defeated. And uh, it says, no, he will have an uncrushable spirit. Uh, he might look like a pushover, but this gentle, incredible servant is not going to be able to be stopped. Uh, he will keep going no matter what. And uh, it was interesting, Ian and I were having a conversation through the week. I was going through, I think Ian called it uh, Case of the Blahs, <laughs> which, whilst that doesn't sound particularly articulate, really summed up what I was going through. And uh, as Ian 
shared some of his own experience through life and helped put my own situation in a broader context, it was uh, really, really helpful to kind of realise that, yeah, there are seasons that we go through and stages of life and transitions and things shift and change and sometimes that's a little bit disorienting and there's a certain death involved in that and then you come through and there's amazing liberty and freedom on the other side of it. And it was kind of this positioning my story in a bigger story that really helped me go, yeah, okay, I, I kind of got out of a line of sight now where I am and what's going on. And for this servant, he's not crushed by whatever happens because he knows where he is in this bigger story. And his passion is to live out his purpose in this bigger story. So no matter what kind of things oppress him or attacks might come or wherever he might stumble in his stride, this servant is held by a purpose bigger than simply his personal circumstance or his individual satisfaction and he cannot be crushed, which is a wonderful thing, which makes him kind of unstoppable, like a charging rhino. Um, He has an uncrushable spirit and his purpose is unstoppable. Uh, The idea of bringing God's governance to the whole earth so possesses this servant that he will do everything and all in his power to bring it about. Uh, It's not a strategy to gain recognition or to be a big somebody or anything like that. He is so focused on that purpose of bringing God's justice to the whole world. And the best example I can think of ever seeing this is... uh, it's one that happened 25 years ago, and I think I've probably shared it with some of you before. When we were, my Joe, Joe and I, my wife, we were in New Delhi in India uh, observing mission development uh, work in the slums around New Delhi, and we were following health workers, and there was um, some young women who were in their early 20s. They were uh, tertiary educated, had university degrees. They opened up enormous opportunities for themselves in the burgeoning middle class of India. They could have become quite wealthy quite quickly in positions, in businesses and so forth. But there they were, kneeling down on dirt floors, attending to very basic healthcare needs of the poorest of the poor. And, you know, lots of things in India at that stage had shocked me and rocked my sense of reality and so forth. But this was probably the most shocking and the most difficult for me to understand. And as we watched them over a series of months, towards the end I had to ask, why are you doing this? You've got so many opportunities. Like I get doing a little bit of kind work here and there and volunteer, but they poured their lives into this work. Why are you doing this? And they looked at me as if, the question didn't make sense. And as I waited for an answer, they kind of said, well, this is what Jesus calls us to do. And there was no sense of judgment or irony or anything at all. It was just, that's why we do it. And I found that mind-blowing. I still find it mind-blowing because they just love doing it. It's what they'd been called to do and they found incredible joy in doing it and there was nothing else to be doing than caring for the poorest of the poor. And that's the kind of spirit of the servant of God. See, the salvation that this servant of God achieves is not simply something that is done to us or for us, 
It's something that we are called into. We become participants in this salvation of God. We're invited to join the work of the servant. We're called to be the body of Christ. We are those who have had our eyes opened and we become those who help to open the eyes of others. We are the ones who have been set free and we are called to help set others free. Prisoners are liberated from what, have held, what has held them back and they become instrumental in the freedom of others. It's not doing something more or different than what God has done for us, but simply testifying to what God has done for us and these new things that God is bringing into the world through us. They're already being mentioned in Scripture as each new generation responds to this hope and promise and salvation of God and we share that with others. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your vision that you gave Isaiah, that he could see your calling for your people is to be the servant of all people, that all people might become your servants and so transform the world. We want to put our hands up for that and say yes and use us. And may we love the world as you love the world. To the glory of your name. Amen.